Hello, my name is David Old and this is Dual Citizens Episode 8. A cricketing legend passes away and the world celebrates another International Women's Day. Vale Shane Warne. One of the biggest items in Australian domestic news this week has been the passing of cricket legend Shane Warne. Shane Warne, or Warney as he was belovedly known, was Australia's number one spin bowler for much of the 90s and 2000s. Over a 15-year career, Shane Warne took 708 test wickets, which was until 2007 the highest career total of any player in the history of test cricket. Uh, reports so far suggest Warren died of natural causes, likely a heart attack, at a holiday villa on Thailand's Koh Samui Island while holidaying there with some friends. Uh, without a doubt, he was amongst the greatest cricketers of all time. More than that, though, he was, according to some, one of Australia's greatest ever characters, or at least one of the most well-known. Now, why was Warren such an iconic Australian figure? Well, at the risk of being blunt, it's likely because of the hard living that likely contributed to his shockingly early death. Warren was a lifelong smoker, partied hard, and by his own admission, both during and after his playing career, suffered, uh, struggled significantly with his diet and weight. But then he never pretended to be perfect. He was nevertheless iconic. Uh, while in a luxury villa in Thai paradise, his meal of choice, uh, which turned out to be his last, was Vegemite on toast, perhaps with a side of baked beans. No wonder Australian cricket fans have poured out their sorrow, leaving beer bottles and packets of cigarettes in fond memory of their hero at the foot of his statue at the Melbourne Cricket Ground precinct. Uh, the internet and print media, of course, is still full of admiration for Warren's cricketing achievements and recollections of many of uh, his, let's call them Warren-centric off-field anecdotes. Uh, we're going to show you here again, probably his most famous moment, his first ball in the first test against, sorry, give me a moment, England, uh, the famous ball of the century in the first test of that 1993 um, Ashes series at Manchester uh, that left Mike Gatting wondering quite just what had happened. Here it is. In test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Gatting has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. He asked Kenny Palmer on the way out. Kenny Palmer just gave him a raised eyebrow and a little nod, and that's all it needed. Well, that has turned about two and a half feet. Gatting can't believe his eyes. What a start for Shane Warne. Mike Gatting bold warned for four, England two for 80. I mean, let's face it, without a doubt, a cricketing genius, widely admired for his abilities. The Englishman in me lived in dread of us having to face Australia in the ashes because of him. But his flaws as a man are, are public knowledge. Perhaps it's even correct to say that they contribute to his elevated national status. He had a reputation for his womanizing, and often for women far younger than himself, and his hedonism. While traveling for work or recreation, Warren could often be found on Tinder, or particularly if you were a young, attractive 20-something on the app, he might find you first. 
Drinking buddy and comedian Lawrence Mooney opined that Warren's life was, quote, Tinder, beers, darts, gambling, and cricket. Those five things. That's it. It is this aspect of Warren's personality that has amazingly almost especially endeared him to Australians, or at least some of us. Australia loves what it calls the larrikin, and Warren was, if anything, a larrikin. But he was more... He lived his life with an almost surreal disregard for his own mortality and human frailty. And no doubt many who looked up to him are shocked at the fact that the thrilling circus of Warren's not-so-private life ended so soon. And it is, of course, a tragedy for his own family. He leaves behind his ex-wife and his children from whom he has been taken far too soon. And that is perhaps the enormous lesson from Warren's life and death. We can think that we're in control, that we're invincible, but it can all be snatched from us. Warren was in many ways invincible. At his best, he was utterly unplayable on the pitch. But it wasn't the only place where he could simply have his way, whether spinning a ball left or swiping the screen right, it seems that he almost always got what he wanted. Or so it seemed. Indeed, who actually knows whether Warren was genuinely content or maybe just always grasping for more. Now, at the church where I'm on staff, we're preparing for a short sermon series in the Old Testament wisdom book, Ecclesiastes. It is a fascinating read, famous for its bleak assessment of life in a broken world. Everything in creation that holds out so much promise, that should bring so much enjoyment, ends up, we're told, not truly satisfying us at all. The writer tells us about the different things he tried and explored to end up at this conclusion. So, for example, from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. And it turns out nothing really makes a difference because, as the writer starkly puts it, we still die. Nothing can put off the inevitable. The truth is actually set out for us right at the very beginning. The, the first recorded words of the teacher are... Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now the word vanity here can be translated a number of different ways from the original Hebrew. Some Bibles will render it vapor or mist, that, that sense of something that, that can't be grasped and, and, and quickly goes. Others have the word meaningless. They're all, they're all good expressions of the same root word, but perhaps none of those translations actually grasps the essence of what is being communicated here. Because that same word can simply be uttered as Abel. Abel, the name of the first child of Adam and Eve. And now we see what is really being communicated. Abel, whose birth promised so much. The man and the woman, of course, had been banished from the garden for their sin, shut out from the presence of God and cursed as punishment. And yet also given a great promise. The woman, who up to this point has no name, is told that her seed will crush the serpent who has deceived them. From her will come someone who will rescue humanity from this great tragedy of sin. And so she is then named Eve, which means the mother of all the living. 
And the living that's in view here is not simply lungs that breathe and a heart that beats, but the renewed, transformed life, sin forgiven and hope for the future. And so the birth of Abel brings joy and hope and great anticipation. Is this the one? Well, we know the story. Abel's blood is spilled by his own brother. Rather than being the answer to sin, he becomes its great victim. And so, Abel, Abel, everything is Abel, says Ecclesiastes to us. It's all so disappointing. It's all so tragic. It could be and should be so much, and yet it all dies. As for man, writes the psalmist, he flourishes like a flower in the field. And then the wind blows over it, and it is no more. Shane Warne certainly flourished, and yet now the wind blows. And it blew long before we expected it to. It's sobering. It's, it's meant to be. Yet it's not the only thing to say. Here's how the psalmist continues. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. So the only answer in the face of death is for us to place our future in the hands of the only one who has overcome death, who stands as master over it. And perhaps in his last moments, Shane Warne did indeed reach out to him. It's entirely possible. The taste of death can do that. As for the rest of us, maybe we can use this sobering moment to speak to those around us of the bigger things of life. There's a time to live and a time to die, says Ecclesiastes. We can't avoid either, and sometimes we need to be shocked into realising it, and then shown what the answer is. Now, this week saw International Women's Day on Wednesday the 8th of March, in which countries all over the world come together to celebrate the achievements of women globally and think about what more could be done. Uh, The day itself has its historical origins in 1908 in New York, where a group of 15,000 women marched for shorter working hours, better pay and voting rights. Uh, As it is now, the focus on International Women's Day has a very strong economic and cultural agenda, facilitating discussion on wages, employment and political position. In accordance with a declaration by the Socialist Party of America, an interesting origin, uh, the first National Women's Day there was observed across the United States on February the 28th. In 1910, a second international conference of working women was held in Copenhagen. A woman named Clara Zetkin, who was the leader of the Women's Office for the Social Democratic Party in Germany, tabled the idea of this International Women's Day. She proposed that every year in every country there should be a celebration on the same day, a a Women's Day, to press for their demands. The conference had over 100 women from 17 different countries representing unions, socialist parties, working women's clubs, and included the first three women elected to the Finnish parliament. Quite a radical thing for the time. Following a decision agreed at Copenhagen in Denmark a year later, 1911, International Women's Day was observed for the first time in Austria, Denmark, Germany and Switzerland on the 19th of March. More than one million women and men attended rallies campaigning for women's right to work, to vote, to be trained, to hold public office and generally for there to be an end to discrimination. International Women's Day was celebrated for the first time by the United Nations in 1975. They announced their first annual theme was celebrating the past, 
Planning for the Future, which was followed in 1997 with Women at the Peace Table, in 1998 with Women and Human Rights, and in 1999 with A World Free of Violence Against Women. All we've got to say laudable aims. In 2001, the internationalwomensday.com platform was launched with the specific purpose of re-energizing this day, a focus which continues to, to uh, the current day, celebrating and making visible the achievements of women while continuing the call for accelerating gender parity, arguing for choose to challenge, each for equal, balance for better, all these hashtags, press for progress, be bold for change, pledge for parity, make it happen, the gender agenda, and more. Today, last week's theme for International Women's Day was changing climates, equality today for a sustainable tomorrow. And it's been about recognizing and amplifying the important role that women and girls around the world play in addressing climate change. Uh, women, as described by the United Nations here, are frequently sidelined when it comes to developing solutions to the climate crisis, with 67% of all climate-related decision-making roles currently held by men. This year's International Women's Day also argues that by excluding the voices of women, trans women, non-binary and gender non-conforming people, particularly those of indigenous peoples and people from the global south, that, that that can only result in an impoverished understanding of the climate crisis, leaving us with little chance of ever achieving, achieving true climate justice. It also mentions the compound challenges faced by women of color, women with disabilities, uh, and of course, queer or trans women, and seeks to stand in partnership with them. Uh, some of the slogans for this year include, we will celebrate women's achievements, we will help forge women's equality, we will maintain a gender equal mindset and forge a gender equal world. Well, what does the dual citizen want to say? Well, as Christians, uh, we're informed uh, by the Bible about the roles that men and women have. Uh, and so having said that, there's a lot here that we would want to agree with. Uh, and we certainly can agree with it, but perhaps also a bunch of more debatable stuff, maybe some values where we're concerned about that seem to be lying under the surface. But look, first, hopefully, surely, we can all agree that women should not be discriminated against uh, in the workplace, let alone anywhere else, whether that discrimination be about unequal wages for the same job or abusive treatment or, or any other form of gendered uh, vilification. It's also, of course, important that women are not excluded from working opportunities simply on the basis of their gender, which may well have been the case in the past and certainly probably is happening in some places today. Uh, that can happen for a number of reasons, including just a simple chauvinism, uh, through to a genuine concern that a woman might get pregnant and therefore bring disruption into the workplace as she leaves again to have her child. All these different reasons uh, were given for women not being employed. However, for all the good intentions that we want to value in International Women's Day, there are many things that as Christians, perhaps we just need to think about a little bit more. Uh, first and more foundationally, the idea of womanhood in, in this is not the same idea ultimately as uh, of, about women that we get in the Bible. So we learn in Genesis 2 that the woman is made from Adam's side and made different to Adam as his helper. Now, however you understand that text, and of course there's debates about it, what we can't deny is that simple science affirms to us that men and women are different. Uh, they're different all the way down in their chromosomes, and that difference is expressed all the way up through our biology. 
Yet today, many would claim that gender is just a social construct in which now anyone can identify as a woman. Uh, and International Women's Day encompasses this sort of thinking alongside the more helpful things it has to say. Uh, secondly, and especially this year, uh, it seems to be combining issues of gender with some forms of climate alarmism. Uh, as described by the United Nations, this year's theme is to get the voices of women heard in order to reverse the catastrophic effects of anthropogenic carbon emissions. That basically means man-made climate change. Uh, it seems behind this idea is this separate sub-agenda, one that's conflating these issues of world temperature rises with the position of women in political power. Now again, uh, the primary claim that often women suffer more because of climate change is one to take seriously. But perhaps we can, we can uh, draw the line there. Uh, International Women's Day also espouses this critical theory of intersectionality, which equates the suffering and or privilege of women and people of color and minority sexual groups in categories of oppressed people. Uh, in a past episode, of course, we've dived into this topic in much greater detail, but the point for us here is that it's not just a movement. International Women's Day is not just a movement about gender, but smuggles in these other agendas into the worldview. Uh, next, uh, the goal here is to forge what they call a gender equal world, one where all positions of power and influence are represented by a 50-50 split in gender representation. And that's gonna require the addition of women's quotas, which means when, when women or men ultimately may get chosen for a job not based on merit, but based on gender. Very similar, for example, to how the Biden administration has recently chosen a new uh, nominee to be Supreme Court Justice. It seems, well, not seems, openly they've said it, based on her gender and her race. And in one sense, this requires society to flatten its own meritocracy, which may or may not be bad, but the danger is that it tokenizes often the position that these women get. Are they really there because they earned it or for some other reason? In one sense, it's actually insulting to some of these women, as competent as they may be. In a similar vein, International Women's Day is primarily concerned with positions of power and encourages a view of women that is fulfilled in career and equal, apparently equal status with male positions of power. Now famously on, on the uh, Australian talk show Q&A a few years ago, Jordan Peterson, the uh, let's call him uh, controversial uh, Canadian psychologist, asked a Labour MP if she was also an advocate for female bricklayers and a gender quota in manual labor jobs. Uh, the video went viral as the Labour MP struggled to understand the question to, to why she would support the equal distribution of men and women in those careers. And the point Peterson was making uh, as, is often these ideas of gender equality are, are more concerned with power and financial influence and aren't consistently applied. They're not concerned with the actual natural choices that many women are making. So just as an example, one thing you'll not see International Women's Day do, at least not overtly and, and at the front, is to encourage the stay-at-home mother who has chosen to dedicate her life to the service of her family. Indeed, in our current society, these ideas are, are frowned upon and almost spoken of as though they're female domestic slavery. They're laughed at. Yet as Christians, we know that men and women are created different with an equality before God, but not the same roles necessarily uh, as male and female. Do you know, it is possible to have your work valued by things other than money. 
Which is why uh, when the International Women's Day and movements like it target one of the most controversial debates of gender equality, the, the gender pay gap, we need to pay attention. You see, ultimately, the debate about the gender pay gap does not come down to how males and females get paid for the same job. Because now, in, in most countries around the world, practices of discrimination based on sex are illegal. But actually, this whole issue comes down to how men and women are making their choices. For the social scientists, the correlation of women's income is grounds for causation of discrimination in the workforce. But at closer evaluation, what we see is that women make vastly different decisions about what they want to do. And they do that even as societies become more egalitarian. When offered more choices, the research shows us women are even more likely to choose jobs such as childcare, nursing, or even a full-time career as a mother. And those jobs just don't pay as much as other jobs. Now, whether they should do or not is a different debate, but there's just the facts. Men are less likely, when given total choice, to take maternity leave than women, and as expected, less likely to leave the workforce to have a baby. As one scientist put it, research suggests that greater nation-level gender equality leads to psychological dissimilarity in women's and men's personality traits. Or, if you're really free to choose who you want to be, it turns out that men and women want to be different. Because as this research says, quote, society becomes more prosperous and more egalitarian, innate dispositional differences between men and women have more space to develop. And the gap that exists between men and women in their personality actually becomes wider. Uh, the, the moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt has pointed out that women earn more PhDs at university in health sciences, education, public administration, agriculture, arts, the humanities, and psychology. Men are more likely to earn PhDs in business, physical sciences, math and computer science, and much more drastically in the field of engineering. Uh, as Haidt notes, there are these innate biological differences between men and women, uh, one that means that egalitarian societies are not going to create this gender equal world that the International Women's Day is looking for, but rather we end up getting a world where men and women are more likely to choose jobs that involve, um, men are more likely to choose jobs that involve things, and women more likely to choose jobs with people. That's just what they're like in general. A recent study showed us women graduating from university with 50,000 degrees make up a larger percentage of first-class honor students and higher marks on average over courses. Now that doesn't mean that they're smarter, does it? Or that institutional forces are discriminating against one specific gender, uh, does it? That, that would be uh, perhaps the correlation and causation fallacy. But what it does re reveal to us is that there are biological differences that are innate between men and women. Surprise, surprise, just as the Bible described it to us. Well, what does the dual citizen uh, want to be uh, uh, thinking? Again, uh, let me be clear, International Women's Day has many good things that we want to agree with them on, but in many ways it does not recognise the bare reality that men and women are basically ultimately made in the image of God. Their differences are not just a social construct. So, Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. At the same time, the creation account, as we have discussed previously on dual citizens, also presents men and women as being different. Jesus affirms this when he endorses the Genesis account of creation, and again, science quite obviously tells us this is true. 
The scriptures go further, of course, especially within marriage. As a husband, I'm called to sacrifice myself for my wife out of love, to treat her with the same priority that I give to my own body. This is radically different to treating women the way that the International Women's Day Council wants men to. I suspect at the heart of this is the problem that our society has fallen for a tremendous lie. And the lie is this, that people have value based on what they do, not simply in and of themselves. See, when what I do is what I get value from, I will concentrate on what I do as the measure of value. And especially so when I value everything in dollars. So unpaid work, such as staying home to raise children, is in every way low value. And the chief executive position is of the highest value. In that world, it makes perfect sense to demand that women sit at the top table, not just place the food upon it. But when our value simply comes from being made in the image of God, well, then we have infinite value no matter what we choose to do. So the Christian understands that it is noble for women to bear and raise children, and also entirely possible for a woman to lead our largest companies. But here's the thing. Many women are finding it very difficult to do both at the same time. Yet they find themselves conflicted. They see the value of the former, and yet they're told that the real value only comes from the latter. But if we're made in God's image, we don't have to go proving our value, let alone putting a dollar figure on it. We know that we are valuable. And that is the most empowering thing women, and of course also men, all over the world could be told. Now, finally, just some other things going on in the world that you should be aware of. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are on the brink of securing some ceasefires, uh, hopefully covering five different cities in Ukraine. Uh, this, uh, we're hoping, will open up evacuation corridors for civilians seeking to flee from the areas under siege. Indeed, even as we're filming it, I'm hearing that one of those uh, may have actually been working well this time round. Uh, also related to the Ukraine crisis, global oil prices have surged to their highest level since 2014. Australian consumers are copying nearly $170 per barrel. I've never paid as much for my petrol in a long, long time uh, uh, because alongside supply chain issues caused by the wild weather experienced along the east coast of New South Wales and Queensland, it's, it's, it's really hitting us at the petrol pump. Uh, Sydney has experienced one of the wettest starts to the year on record. It's been raining pretty much non-stop since we filmed last week. And uh, now we've got major flooding events occurring across our own northeast and southwest. Wet conditions are expected to continue for much of the week. Commuters are being warned not to travel. Uh, the Premier has now committed to spend the next week on the ground in the inundated Northern Rivers region. And it's fair to say they're picking up some flack now for their response. And finally, did you spot this one? The Japanese encephalitis virus has been discovered in more than 40 piggeries across Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, and South Australia, even within the last month. Human cases of Japanese encephalitis have emerged and one person was in intensive care this week and now we've heard that they have died. The Federal Health Department last Friday declared Japanese encephalitis, listen to this, a communicable disease incident of national significance. The outbreak could have ramifications for both the pork industry and of course, public health. Do you get this feeling of here we go again? Come back COVID, all is forgiven. 
Well, friends, that is Dual Citizens episode eight. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear from you. Uh, leave a comment on the video, uh, like us, subscribe, share this video, send us a message, email us, use the contact form on the website, whatever works for you. Tweet us, Facebook us. Uh, we love to have all your suggestions about what we should be talking about, and we will see you next week. My name is David Old, and this was Dual Citizens. Don't you like the sweater vest? What was I going for? Well, you know, I worked on the script and then I thought, well, it could be a, could be a cricketing, could be like a cricketing sweater vest thing. Do they have those here in Australia? Or maybe it's just my very white middle-class mansplaining outfit. I don't know, you decide.